Okay, before I start this morning uh, to give the message, I just want to say two things, just 30 seconds or so. First of all, uh, what I'm about to tell you is from the Bible, obviously. I always cheat and I always use that. Um, but it's not political, okay? There's no hidden message, there's no undercurrent of meaning or anything like that from a political level because I understand we live in very sensitive times and particularly now more so than for a very, very long time with what's going on in Israel and Gaza and so on and so forth. So please understand when I present scriptures and, mes and this message that there is no undercurrent, there is no hidden message and there is no political agenda, okay? And secondly, um, at the end of the message, uh, we will take communion. It will be kind of wrapped up into what we do today. So uh, if you start looking at your watches and thinking this is going on a bit longer than it should, hopefully it won't, but if it does, remember you're getting a two-for-one deal here because <laughs> we're getting communion wrapped into all of this as well, okay? So uh, bear that in mind and, and, and bear with me. Okay. So, we've just taken a couple of minutes uh, of remembrance, rightly so. A fairly somber time, obviously, in some respects. Um, and the question is, on a day of remembrance, I want to ask you something specific about these and this. Okay? Now, these are matzos, or matzah. It's unleavened bread. I always come up here with food, it seems. I, I came up here with a, a box of Cheerios once upon a time. This is a matzah, or matzo, okay? And it's unleavened bread, and it's used today at the Passover amongst the Jewish community. But you can buy these in Tesco and Sainsbury's, and they're really nice. So you don't have to use them just for Passover if you keep Passover. If you're not Jewish, you probably wouldn't anyway. And if these last, oh, I don't know, four days in my household, Christine quite likes them, you see, you can cover them in butter and marmite, and they taste really nice, okay? So they're called matzos. That's what they look like. And they're made by... Rakusans. There we are. And they're in Yorkshire, believe it or not. So, the question is, what is the similarity between the poppy of remembrance and the matzo? The unleavened bread. Exactly. Remembrance. We remember the fallen, as we just have. Um, and we remember them because they gave lives, they sacrificed for freedom. And equally, on Passover, the matzah, or matzo, is used in the Jewish community, and sometimes in the Christian community as well, at Passover, to commemorate the escape from tyranny of the Egyptians, way back when, that you can read about in Exodus. So that's the, that's the connection between remembrance today, that we've just conducted, and remembrance in terms of Passover. And of course, Passover rolled into communion, as we now call it, or the Eucharist, which we commonly take as a Christian community, and it's a point of remembrance. So, remembrance is the connection. 
This is the title. Remember to forget to be loyal. We have a theme at the moment for this month, which is all about loyalty. And that's a misleading title. And I won't explain it until the end. But that's the title for you to get your heads around. Remember to forget to be loyal. Keep it in mind. So, in Luke's account of uh, the Last Supper, the Passover, Christ said, once he'd taken the emblem of the bread in particular, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And my question is, what does that really mean to us? How deep does that go? What is Christ actually trying to say? Is it just remember Christ as a historical figure? Because he was an historical figure, in case anybody's wondering that. No, I don't think it's as glib and as simple as that, necessarily. Is it about the passion, the suffering that he went through, to some extent? But I'm not going to sort of home in on the passion of Christ and the sufferings of Christ in this message. That's quite a personal thing. It's obviously documented in Scripture. It's there for a reason. It's there for us to remember. But I want to go perhaps a little bit deeper than that on a spiritual level to ask that question. What did Christ mean when he said, do this in remembrance of me? Well, the context, of course, of this was Christ was taking a Passover, and the Passover is a commemoration or remembrance service amongst the Jewish community. So, when Christ said, do this in remembrance of me, the 12 disciples that were there would not necessarily have been surprised because remembrance is what they were doing. They might have been surprised at what he did with the emblems of of bread and wine, but they would not have necessarily been confused by the fact that he said, do this in remembrance of me at a commemoration service, because they were commemorating the 12 tribes of Israel departing from Egypt. Now, I specifically mention the fact that there are 12 tribes of Israel, because sometimes we get a little bit confused that there's only one, Judah or the Jews. Well, there were 12. And I can't help that. That's just historical fact. There were 12. Ten of them have disappeared into the ether. I don't know where they are. Some people have theories. I did once. I don't now. Maybe I'm from the tribe of Dan, or Reuben, or Asher. I don't know. I'm not from the tribe of Judah, as far as I know. So, it would not have come as a surprise, necessarily, to the disciples. In Luke 22, 8, no need to go there, it says, So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. Taking Passover then was a whole big deal. It was nothing like the simplicity of what we do today. It, there was a process to Passover, it had to be prepared for, you had to sacrifice a lamb, you had to roast the lamb, there, were, uh, there was unleavened bread obviously, there were bitter herbs that were taken, there was wine, 
probably four cups of wine, and each cup has a name, and that name of those four cups is still recognized today amongst the Jewish community. And when you look at what the Jewish people do today for Passover, there is conjecture and thought that it's probably very similar, or it's certain ways similar to what Christ did way back then. The Jewish Passover is called the Passover, of course, but it's also called the Seder plate. And Seder means order. There's an order to the process. And they even have a book at every Passover, the Jewish people do, called the Haggadah, which tells them, not the Haggadahs, that's ice cream, <laughs> the Haggadah, to tell them how to go through this order. Okay, so the whole concept of Passover was very different then to what we know now as communion. Okay, very, very different. It was a meal, it was with friends, it was with believers, it was communal, it was a bonding thing, it was a memorial, and there were all these wonderful things going on in terms of bread, unleavened as it was, wine, etc., etc. Okay? Slide one, please. That picture, if you can see it, is the Last Supper painted by Leonardo da Vinci at the end of the 15th century. Tell me, if you can, what is wrong with that picture. Yep. The table's too high, that's true, yeah. I'll tell you what's wrong with that, that picture. The points are true. Everything, <laughs> absolutely everything is wrong with that picture. Leonardo da Vinci was a great painter, but he was a terrible theologian and an even worse historian. First of all, look in the background. It's light. The Passover was taken in the evening. Secondly, look at the table if you can. There's bread, and it's leavened, just like Hovis. They would not have had leavened bread. In the, in the picture as well, you won't be able to see it. They have fish. They didn't have fish. They had lamb. And here's the thing. The table is too high, because they didn't sit at high tables for the Passover, and it's just a long table. And that's not the way it was back in the day. Slide two, please. That's what it would have looked like. This is the Last Supper triclinium. A triclinium is a U-shaped, depending on which way you look at it, table, low, so you can recline, and people sat round in that formation. That's a much more accurate picture of the Last Supper or the Passover, okay? In verse 14 of um, Luke 22, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. So, this is where we're at here. Could we have the next slide, please? And this is the seating order. John, Jesus, and Judas were on this left-hand side. Peter, right at the other end. They didn't have the head of the table in those days. That was not a concept that they understood, okay? The guest of honour was always to the left of the host. So if you can read that, Jesus is there in the middle, the yellow block there. Judas, the betrayer, is to his left. 
John, the next guest of honour, is to, sorry, I beg you, is to his right. Okay? That's, again, an historical fact. It's, you can go through archaeology, you can do all of that, and that's how it would have been at the Last Supper. So you can see that Leonardo da Vinci's painting was rather good, but rather terrible in terms of its accuracy. How do we know that Judas was the guest of honour? We know because in Mark 14, 20, Jesus said, when they were asked, who's it that's going to betray me? He said, it is one of the 12 who is dipping bread with me in my dish. They used to do that with, with bread and dip it into the dish. Now, again, the custom of the time was it was only, only the guest of honour who would do that. So here we have Judas, the guest of honour, who was about to betray Christ on his left. Okay? Now, what's, why is that important? Well, it's important from at least an historical point of view, so we all understand what happened. But it's also important because as we think about loyalty, Judas failed on every level. Failed on every level. And he failed because of unbelief. He just did not believe, he just did not get the message of grace. He was not, it just did not chime with this man at all. In John 6, 64, we won't go there, but I'll read it. It says, this is Christ's words, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. Non-belief was the problem with Judas as much as anything. You can't be loyal, I can't be loyal to something I don't believe in. It's just not possible. You cannot be fully loyal and committed to something you don't believe in. He never understood and he never believed. And if you're in conflict with anything in terms of a belief system, you cannot be loyal to it. Now, interestingly, back on that slide, if I could please, Hudson, just as a reminder, interestingly, there are 12 apostles and there are 12 tribes of Israel. One apostle betrayed Jesus called Judas. One tribe, Judah, the Jews, rejected Christ. Interestingly, Judas's name is a Greek formation of the word Judah. This was a type of what was going to happen in one respect, in just in terms of a picture, if you will, that Judas would betray, or at least not believe, and neither would the Jews. The Jews rejected Christ. Again, just history, folks, just the way it is. One day, I have no doubt, they will all be saved, as I believe most people will on the face of this earth in one form or another. But that's my view. So, Judas's rejection, if we go to Matthew uh, 27, Matthew 27, I'm going to read from uh, 3 to 5. He said this, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. A bit late. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, 
I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. And the odd thing about that is, because Judas's mind was wrapped up into the, the law at the time, he had no belief in grace, clearly, he fled to the lawgivers and the administrators of the law, the chief priests, etc., in the hope that giving back this money that he'd taken from them to betray Jesus, it would somehow be okay. And they said, we don't care, the job's done. And ironically and sadly, that all happened in a way while Christ was demonstrating at the Passover, I'm here to forgive. I'm here to forgive. He was dismantling, Christ was dismantling the old ways, the law, etc., in favour of the new covenant at the Passover that he was taking. And yet, poor old should I say that word? Should I use that phrase? Judas failed to recognize that and sought solace somewhere else where he would never find it. Okay, that's enough of all the negative stuff, okay? Let's talk about something more positive. So, let's think about now, what is a loyal response to the communion and to the Passover, if you will? In Luke 22:19, again, I'll just read it. It said, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he takes bread, unleavened bread, breaks it, and he gives it to them. And he said, do this in remembrance of me, because this bread represents me. And interestingly, Christ, of course, we're coming up to Christmas, was born in Bethlehem. Know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. Bethlehem. The Jewish word for house is Beth. Hello, Beth. <laughs> Welcome to a house. <laughs> Lehem, bread. Bethlehem means the house of bread. How significant is this when you pull out of Scripture some of these things, these Im this imagery of Christ as our Saviour? House of bread. And in John 6.48, he says this, I am the bread of life, not death. I'm not the bread of death, I'm the bread of life. Because bread is a symbol of life, not death. Okay? And in verse 63 of John 6, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no avail, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There's something going on here, there's the connection between life and bread and the word of Christ and the spirit because those are the life sources we have spiritually. Bread is a symbol of life and our truth, the word that we read, is our bread represented by the unleavened bread of communion. Truth, which is really what we're talking about, when we say this, when we use this, this imagery of bread and the words that I have spoken and I am the bread of life, truth changes minds. 
you're all here and I'm here because I read this or somebody spoke to me about it and it made sense and we believed. And in belief, there is salvation through Christ. In Romans 10, 17, it says, So faith comes from the hearing, and the hearing through the word of Christ. You see where that's going? Truth comes through the hearing, or sorry, faith comes through the hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. He is the word. None of us can remember Christ, literally, because we never met him. Okay, some people have spiritual experiences, I get that. But most of us probably don't. The way we know Christ is this mind that of his that's written down. This is, this is supernatural stuff, and I mean supernatural stuff in the godly sense. That's what this is. So what is it we believe in? Well, we believe in the third cup of the Passover. And when the Jews pass around their cups, four of them, um, the third cup is called the cup of redemption. And it seems to have been the same back in the day. The cup of redemption. So the Jews do this today, not even knowing that Christ is the Saviour, taking the cup of redemption, the third cup. And in Luke 22, 20, and likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's what it is. It's the new covenant in my blood. That's what he said. What's a covenant? It's like a will. It's like something somebody writes down and said, when I die, and we'll come to this in a minute, about death and covenants, when I die, this will comes into effect. And the blood here is representing that will coming into effect, a new covenant. Freed from the law of sin and death through the law of the spirit of life in Christ, Romans 8.22. It's a, a version of it. We have faith in the sacrifice, the resurrection, and the freedom that Christ affords us. We have faith in the absolute saving work of Christ. And as an aside, if you want to make a note, in John 6, 29, Christ gets asked, well, what shall we do to be doing your work, Jesus? What shall we do? And do you know what he said? Believe. It says, literally, if you believe, you are doing the work of God. So here we go into a, an area of um, new covenant. So you're with me so far? We've got this thing about life coming from bread, which we talk about as truth because it is the words that I have spoken are life. I am the bread of life, okay? And now we're moving on to the blood which is in the new covenant. Hebrews 10, 17 to 18 says this, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any, any sacrifice for sin. What do we try and offer for sin? Because let's read that quickly again. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer nothing, nothing at all that can be offered for sin. Nothing. So the question is to me and you, because I know this happens, what do we try and offer for sin? What do we do? Guilt, shame, good works, confession, 
offerings, fasting. Okay, we're all individuals. Our relationship with God is an individual thing. And some of those things will chime with you. But nothing, it says nothing, will offer for sin any longer. And communion. Controversial point, perhaps. This communion is not to appease God. When we take bread and wine, you're not settling a, a, a score or a, or a debt because that's been done for you. That's not happening, okay? It is not a confessional. Now, I know there are scriptures in 1 Corinthians 11 about examine yourselves. Whole new topic, whole new, you know, sermon, okay? There's a context to that and everything. But let's be truthful to ourselves and truthful to the word. There is now no offering for sin. That's it, period. Okay, communion is not a means to appease God. That's not what it's about. Because Christ has offered his blood and his life. Atonement is achieved through giving up of life. That's how it was, that's how it was constructed by God. He decided that's how we would be atoned for sin. And here's the interesting thing. The life, because that's what needs to be given, is in the blood. Leviticus 17.11 says this from the Old Testament, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And remember Christ said the flesh is of no avail. This flesh is an instrument of the blood which carries life. If there was no blood in this body, all the organs could exist, but there would be no life in it because there's no blood. And in Leviticus 17, 11, quite categorically states, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar. This is talking about the old covenant, of course, to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And of course, back then, they were trying to atone through blood of bulls and goats, etc., and doves and so forth. So the debt of the old, which is death, that's the debt, is paid with blood. But the duality of all of this is amazing because the gift of the new, which is life, also comes through blood. Because a covenant, a new covenant, has to have love, uh, has to have blood connected to it. And I'm going to read Hebrews. We're getting to the end, don't worry. Two for one. Two for one. In Hebrews 8, 8 to 12, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Twelve tribes. They split. That's another history. Not like the covenant I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, that's you and me, and they shall not teach anyone his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. 
For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. No. Gone. So, that's a beautiful bit of scripture that reminds us of the new covenant. Hebrews 9.17, keep up with me, says this. For a covenant or a will, the word in, uh, in Greek is the same. For a covenant or will, particularly in this part of scripture, takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Here's a new covenant. And there's a lot of, you know, theory and conjecture around this scripture. There's a new covenant here, and it says, a new covenant can't take effect until somebody dies. Christ died. His will became into effect. If we've all written a will, it will not be in effect until we've passed away. And here it is the same again. The new covenant in the blood of Christ. And what we've seen here is that you see bread as being the word of God, the mind of God, the belief that we have, if you like, and the blood in the new covenant where we are forgiven completely and fully. And it combines with truth and grace. And what did it say about Christ? Full of grace and truth. So, what is our response to all of this when we take the communion? Well, personally, not just thanks, elation. Elation. I will remember their sins no more. Now, bear with me, I'm not talking about the passion of Christ. I understand that. But I will remember their sins no more gives me more confidence and hope and happiness than anything else, really. We are, and this perhaps is where we get to understand this silly little title I dreamt up, we are obligated to forget. If it says, I will remember their sins no more, you and me are obligated to forget. If God forgets, we have to forget too. Do not frustrate the grace of God, the work that he has performed, Galatians 2.21. Do not do that by trying to put something in place of grace for the sins that we all inevitably commit. Okay? Do not frustrate the grace of God. Remember to forget, comma, to be loyal to the grace that we're given. Romans 6, 11 says this, so you must consider, not, yeah, you might want to, you might want to have a go at this, guys. It says 6, 11, Romans, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that verse is the demonstration of our loyalty to Christ. Remember to forget the old, to be loyal to the new, to the grace that we live under. Let's take communion and think that through.